God? I thought you were just. How could this have happened? I didn't do anything wrong. Why is this happening to me? I thought God was supposed to reward good people and punish bad people. God, if you're good, why am I suffering like this? Good morning. Are you ready to get into Job again? Part two of eight series. So I hope you have your Bibles as, as James is asking you to open those up, get your digital out. I think any way you can take in the word is, is really good. So this one tonight, uh, this morning, this afternoon, whatever it is, today is on when life hurts. We looked last week at when life goes bad. And so in these eight series, now I really didn't know what I was thinking when I signed up to do this for 42 chapters in eight weeks. So Today we have the biggest chunk, it's 12 chapters, so we might be here for a while. Are you up for that? Maybe three or four hours, maybe five, I don't know. But the Bible project that we looked at, the, the initial video, they said, what is this book of Job all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with the whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. Let me say that again. He dynamically he, he is dy- dynamically interacting with the whole universe of complexity when he makes his decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom, how he does that. So Job couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to, unquote. Would you say amen to that? And neither can we. But we can ask the Holy Spirit of God to show us the things that are spiritually discerned as we get in the word of God. We can ask him to search out the deep things of God, and he will do that. Jesus said that. When the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. He said he's going to send the Holy Spirit, and he would be the one who would be instructing us. So first of all, the question to begin this morning is, are you born again by the Spirit of God? Do you know Christ? Do you know God? If not, this is as much for you as it is for anyone. Because God's word is given to begin that process of being born again, becoming spiritually alive. It starts with the gospel, and the gospel is the word of God. So I'm going to give you an opportunity at the end of the service today, after we get through the word, that if you want to receive Jesus, you want to say yes to Jesus today, and enter into that thing called eternal life. Eternal life is not a period of time, it's a quality of life. So when you accept Christ into your life, you go into this dimension of the spirit, and you begin to see things taught to you by the Holy Spirit about the things of God. So, due to some time constraints that we're going to have particularly today, but each study, because we have a few chapters that we're doing, for, I, I like to review what I'm going to review not quite as extensively as I normally do tonight. Today I'll be a little more. So I want to review those. So I would encourage you, particularly if you weren't here last week, especially to watch last week's, because that really is the foundation for everything that's taking place in the book of Job. It's the prologue to the book. So chapters one and two are setting the stage for everything that comes after that. So after the prologue, there's then dialogues. And there are these dialogues that take place in three cycles. There are dialogue and debate. That takes us from chapters three to 27. Now these give us the human perspective on suffering or the human perspective on difficulties. So we're gonna look at it from ground level with Job. It's the major part of the book. The, the initial prologue gives us the divine perspective. So in chapters one and two, 
what happened there, Job never saw it. He never knew it took place. But we have been able to, we've been, we've been able to go backstage, <laughs> tripping over my, <laughs> uh, we got to go backstage and see what Job never saw. So we, this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, we have a perspective on what God has accomplished for us that should change forever how we view all things in life. And so we've been given that perspective. Then you have the human perspective that in, in these debates that we're going to get into this morning. That's followed by three monologues. So those are from chapters 28 through 41. You have these monologues. There are three of them. The first one is Job himself in chapters 28 to 31. The second one is this guy named Elihu, who was a young buck and had some really... He had a lot of opinions, okay? And then the final one is God himself as he reveals himself in chapters 38 through 41. So the monologues exalt God. It ends with the epilogue, chapter 42. This is the place where, where God is revealed. He's revealed to Job. And in this, as he reveals himself, listen, this is beautiful. He is embracing a broken, broken suffering human being with his wisdom and his goodness. That's Job. So you start with a prologue, then you have these dialogues, then you have three monologues, and then you have the epilogue. So the format and the forming question that really is the foundation for us wrestling through this is the word why. It comes up often. And whenever we talk about suffering, that's the question that comes up. Why? Why is this happening? And when it gets personal, it's why me? Or why is this happening to me? Or what did I do to deserve this? Job is wrestling through those things. The book of Job, however, gives no satisfactory answers. It doesn't answer the why. Finite human beings, we cannot give a meaningful analysis of why. Why? Because God, God's ways are not our ways. So the book of Job is t- taking us through this whole idea of why, and because we resign ourselves, and many times that's what it is, we aren't going to necessarily know the why. The question becomes what? What do I do when I suffer? What do I do as a believer when I'm suffering? Because that's what this book is written for us to, to, to think about. The, the, the scriptures are given for our inspiration and instruction, Corinthians tells us. So it becomes what am I to do when I suffer? In what way can I expect to learn when I suffer? How should I a child of God, go through suffering? Those are the questions we're going to look at. So the title of the whole thing is, When Life Hurts This Morning. When Life Hurts. When Life Goes Bad Last Week, When Life Hurts This Morning. So, with that question, you're going to hear me saying over and over again that the book we looked at last week, first of all, there was an introduction to Job's suffering. Secondly, there's an invitation to trust God's wisdom when we suffer. That's the banner The invitation, the book of Job is an invitation to trust God's wisdom when we suffer. So this whole idea of God's wisdom is how he runs the universe. And we might question that sometimes, but as Job found out, God said, well, do you think you can do a better job than me? Then have at it. And he just took him through this whole spiel in chapters uh, 38 through 41. Now, as we look at Job, again, introductorily, as we looked at last week, for Job, there were three responses to his suffering. And it began, again, last week in chapters 1 and 2 with the patient Job. And we like the patient Job. We'd, like, we'd wish that we were more the patient Job. But he just receives it as from the hand of the Lord initially. 
He receives that calmly. He believes it's God's will, that God allowed it. And so it's from him, and so he just received it. And so naked I came into the world, naked shall I return. To his wife he said, shall we not receive, shall we receive good from the Lord and not affliction? Because his wife said, you ought to curse God and die. So first of all, there's the patient Job. Secondly, which is the bulk of the book, there's the impatient Job. How many can we say amen? So when we go through suffering, as Job did, he begins to get more and more impatient with wanting answers and wanting to be done with it. So you find anger. You find him saying, I'm going to speak with the bitterness of a soul, of my soul. He's contending with God. He's contending with his friends. And that's a normal, acceptable, understandable response to suffering when it continues. So there's the patient Job, the impatient. And then in chapter 42, we have the penitent Job, the repenting Job. And he's not repenting because God said he's upright and blameless. He's repenting because of his shallow understanding of God that just got a lot deeper through his suffering. And that's what God wants to do for each and, one of, each and every one of us. So when we look at the perspectives and we look at the book of Job, it's an invitation to trust Jesus with your life. Jesus is divine perspective. Jesus is human perspective. Jesus is God exalted and Jesus is God Revealed. So we're going to be bringing Jesus into every one of these studies. First Corinthians says this, chapter 1 and verse 30. But of him, that is of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom. It's trusting the wisdom of God. It's trusting the embodiment, Jesus himself, trusting wisdom, who became for us wisdom from God. And not only that, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And in everything, in all things we do, do we not want to glory in the Lord? In suffering, that's difficult, but we can do that, as God teaches us. So again, the general theme of Job, wisdom teaching about God and human suffering. So the questions are these that we're going to be looking at. Is there a moral order in the world and what are the principles on which it is governed? In other words, the first is, is God just? Is he a just God? And then from that, does God govern the universe with strict judgment, justice? In other words, is there any rule whereby goodness is rewarded and wickedness is punished? Or is good always rewarded and is wickedness always punished? And if not, then when are they? So how does it work? That's the, that's the question. Now, a couple other things, just from, from in just my, things that came to my heart and mind, things I was looking at. One of those is, the, it's called the doctrine of divine retribution. Along these same lines. So it's the belief that there is an exact corresponding between one's behavior and one's destiny. So the wicked will perish, the righteous will not. Now, as we say that, I want to just throw this in there as a needed throw in. Our righteousness before God, this side of the resurrection, is through faith in Jesus Christ. We all have sin. We all wrestle with sin. 
If we are getting away from the foundation of Jesus' final and complete work on the cross for our salvation, our righteousness, our sanctification, and ultimately our glorification, we, it's Jesus and what he's accomplished for us that we stand on. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We are justified by faith. We believe what Jesus did for us accomplished all the work necessary for the forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future. He accomplished it fully. Would you say amen to that? So when I sin as a believer, if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from how much? All unrighteousness. All of it. And John went on to say, but brethren, I write these things that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John chapter 2. He doesn't say, but if we sin. He says, and if we sin. These things I write to you that you may not sin. And that's God's heart for us all the way along, that we would find victory over sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. He's Jesus who stands before God for us and for you. He's the greatest attorney going ever. So, Divine retribution is a belief that there is an exact correspondence between one's behavior and one's destiny. We've learned this from our childhood. You remember those days? There was certain behavior that was rewarded and there was certain behavior that was punished with a nice red bottom. <laughs> I love Ephesians. Children, obey your parents and Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that you may live long on the earth. <laughs> You better obey your parents. There's going to be knockout time. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so, second thing, just from my heart to you, as far as the book of Job, I find it interesting, the occurrences of three extremely important words in the Bible, in the book of Job. Now abides faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13. So, the word faith, do you know how many times it appears in the book of Job? Zero. Doesn't appear. Three times the word believe appears, but every time it's because they did not believe. The word love, it occurs one time in the book of Job. And that, let me read you the verse. All my close friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. Not exactly how you'd couch, a, a, you know, you put a frame in your house. That's the word love, one time. Now, the word hope is found 16 times. Most of the time, it's speaking about hopelessness or God destroying hope, wrestling through this thing. But may I say to you, in suffering, this is the thing that we cling to, we need to keep on going. And so 16 times it's found. In fact, in, verses, in the chapters we're going through today, 10 of those times the hope, word hope is found. We need hope. Now, I believe that Job himself is a living example of what faith, hope, and love look like in suffering. He lived out his faith, his hope, and his love as he suffered. So, there are three things I want to give to you as we go through these chapters. Number one, Job, when life hurts, Job was committed to God. Can I get that up there, please? Thank you. Job was committed to God. That's the first thing. We're going to see this throughout these chapters. Secondly, Job complained to God. Can you hear an amen? Now, we know we're not to be complaining, but listen, as we're working through this thing, we get through the impatience, we get into the pain. 
there is going to be need to vent, if you will, to discuss it. And he is complaining to God about what's going on. And then third, Job contended with God and his friends. This is the, I believe, the picture we're getting of when life hurts really bad. He was committed to God. No question about that. He complained to God. That's perfect. It's, it's what's going to happen. And then third, he contended with God and his friends. So as we begin to listen into these, the first of these three cycle dialogues, we meet these three good friends of Job's. We met, him, met them in chapter two where they came. They heard about it. They came. They sat down with Job and for seven days they said nothing as they saw his condition. And so... Everything we're going to learn about this whole thing, what they say and other, is in what they say, not in what we can read about them historically. So we're going to meet them in, their, in these debates. In them, these three friends held stubbornly to their theological insti- insistence that Job was not right with God all the way along. Job, there's sin, there's this, there's that, the other thing. And you need to acknowledge that. You need to agree with us that there's a problem in your life because there's sin in your life and something that God's not happy about. So not only do they hold fast to that, they get increasingly more frustrated when when Job won't agree with them. So in round number one, three rounds, and I like to go round number one, ding. They suggest... There may be sin in Job's life. Round one. That's chapters three through 14. Round two. Chapters 15 through 21. Ding. They insinuate there must be sin in his life. And then it's interesting the word hope. Find it there 16 times. 10 times in that first round. Three times in the second round. And one time in the third round. I mean, they're beating him down, if you will. And so now they're insinuating there must be sin in your life, Job. You get to round three. Zophar's not a part of that, only two of his friends. And now they're accusing him that there is sin in his life, and they're trying to point it out. So it goes from suggestion to insinuation to accusation. It ramps up in its intensity. However, from the very beginning of round number one to the very bitter end of round number three, Job insists that he is a blameless and upright man, and God agrees. That whatever was happening to him was not because he deserved it. He held to his integrity. He insisted all the way along that this was not because something was wrong. He was innocent in that manner. So let's go round number one. When life hurts, he was committed to God. He complained to God. He contended with God and his friends. Job, listen, was a broken man in every sense of the word. He was broken physically, mentally, financially, and emotionally. But his very brokenness became that through which, when tested and proved, Job's deep and abiding love, faith, and hope in God shined. In fact, he said in Job 23.10, He knows my way. And when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. He loved God and trusted God with all his heart. He hoped in God. He knew God was his only hope. So he wished he was never conceived. Let's, continue. Let's go into it now. We've got 12 chapters here. You ready? 
Job, verse 3, 1 of chapter 3, after this, Job opened his mouth, cursed the day of his birth. Job spoke and said, may the day perish on which I was born and the night in which I, it was said, a male child. It's just natural. He's going, why was I ever even conceived? And being conceived, why did they ever live this long? Why wasn't I just at night? Why didn't you just snuff me out? Because it would have been a lot better. Now, in Job, we're getting glimpses of death as they understood it. He said, I'll be at rest with big-time guys. I'm not going to have any more trouble. It's just going to be good. And so he's just wanting to be done, wishing it never happened. Now, this is where the, all the whys start to come up. Look at chapter uh, 3, verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Verse 12. Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? Verse 16, or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? Verse 20, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? Interesting, he's saying God's hedged me in. This is the exact same word that Satan used in chapter 1 and 2 where he said, you've hedged him, chapter 1, where you've hedged him in, meaning God, you've protected him. Job, that's why he serves you, because of your protection. Well, what Job is saying, now, God, you've restricted me. There's this restriction. I'm suffering, and I can't get out of it. So he's using the same word interestingly, and it's the first time he really charges God. He's starting to contend with God at this point. Verse 24, for my sighing comes before I eat, my groaning pour out like water. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me. And I, when I read that, I think, you know, what happened? What did he greatly fear? Well, First of all, he hears the one guy come, hey, I just, this is what happened today. Your camels were all stolen, your servants killed. Then another one comes, while the one speaking. So on one day, he gets all these reports, and he, I can't take it while he's speaking. But in, those, in that first day, he just said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and he bowed and worshiped the Lord. Then it comes again where his children are killed and all those things that we read last week. So, verse 26, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. Now, chapter 4 and 5, this guy Eliphaz shows up. Now, Eliphaz looks at Job's suffering in the context of his whole life. He's the older statesman. So that the innocent never suffer uh, permanently. So he's saying, whatever wrong Job has done, it's trivial, and therefore it's bound to be over soon. That's basically his message. So in verse 1, then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, if one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? So this is the beginning of these friends saying, Job, you need to listen to what we're telling you. You're not looking at this correctly. Verse 6, is not your reverence your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? In other words, Job, your hope is misplaced. You got, you're thinking you're, all, you're this you know, pious guy, but it, there's a problem here. You've misplaced your hope. Verse 7, remember now, here we go, the justice side of it. Whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright ever cut off, killed? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. That's what's happening, Job. So you're having all this trouble. There must be something you've been sowing that's causing it. And now verse 12, a word was, was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a whisper of it. And then he talks about this really weird vision he had, this spirit that came. And he begins to give Job some, some a talking to. And it comes with verse 17. Can a mortal, 
be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? So he's giving him this vision and saying, here's what I heard, but note, it's a subjective vision. Now, when we're suffering, when people are suffering, the tendency is to want to hear something from the Lord. And many times, I've seen this in my own experience in, in just be, knowing people. Many times this word of the Lord comes, but it's not a word of the Lord. It's something to try and encourage them, but God didn't really say that. That's not from the Lord. And so simply here, just to stop a moment, whenever we're hearing people say, this is what the Lord's saying, we need to make sure it's what the Lord's saying. That it's filtered through the entire word of God. Does this line up with God's saying? Because he had false prophets that God had to continually deal with. And they would say, this is what the Lord says. And the Lord said, I never said that. Oh, there's going to be peace and all this. No, I never said that. So we need to be very careful, please, in our suffering. Because at, in those times, we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable. And we want to be strengthened by what God is, in fact, saying. And let me say this. You can never go wrong if you're giving people the word of God in context. In context. Because many times, even verses are taken out of context, and people hang their lives on it, and to find out that wasn't what the Lord was saying at all. I'll end there. We need to not quench the spirit, not despise prophecy, hold, test them all, and then hold on to what is good. So, here we go. Eliphaz continues. For affliction does not come, verse uh, chapter 5, Affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble spring from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, affliction doesn't come from nowhere. Affliction comes because of what we are as human beings. We are trouble. <laughs> There's just, it's, it, the problem, Job, is in your, in your heart. There's trouble there. But first, then he says, verse 8, and it's a great counsel. But as for me, I would seek God, and God, to God I commit my cause. So he's basically, you're not seeking God right now, Job. Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number? You just need to seek God. Verse 15, but he saves the needy from the sword, from the mouth of the mighty, and from their hand. So the poor have hope, and injustice shuts their mouth. Here it is, the whole justice thing. This is what would be happening, Job, if you were right with God. Verse 17, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty, for he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. And he goes on. Certainly, this is good counsel in that sense. But what they're saying is, God, Job, you're wrong. God is trying to correct you in what's going on. Verse 26. You shall come to the grave at a full age, if you listen to God and do what, he's, what I'm saying, as a sheaf of grain ripens in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear it and know for yourself. Job, agree with us on this. Now, he's not disagreeing with some of these things because there are truths there. But the overall thing they're saying is, Job, you're not right with God. That's a hard thing to continue to endure. So Job now, the one experiencing the suffering has a whole other perspective. And that's what he's going to be continuing. He's reeling, he's confused, but listen, he's teachable and he's pliable. He was committed to God, he was complaining to God, and he contended with God and his friends. So, chapter 6, then Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed, and my calamity laid with it on the scales. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash." My suffering and complaining are companions. They go together. That's why I'm saying them. 
It goes with it in my great suffering. Verse four, for the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. Their terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray with its grass? They're they're companions. You can't separate them. Or does does the ox low over its fodder? They go together. Can flavorless food be eaten without salt? They go together. Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? I don't understand that one, but I don't know if there is or not because I don't eat just egg whites. <laughs> My soul refuses to touch them. Notice, they are loathsome food to me. He can't even eat. He's so distraught. But he's saying these things go together. My suffering is causing me to lose my hope. Notice verse 11. What strength do I have that I should hope? And what is my end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of stones? Am I without feeling? Or is my flesh bronze? Is my help not within me? And is success driven from me? Adding to my suffering is what's most needed, he goes on to say. I need my friends. They're my most needed thing right now. And as I'm looking to my friends, they're mostly disappointing and confusing me. I'm losing confidence in my friendships. Verse 14, to him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friends even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Just be kind. Verse 19, the caravans of Tema, look, the travels of Sheba, hope for them. They are disappointed because they were confident they came there and are confused. What happened? What's going on? I'm confused. Why are you treating me like this? Why are you being kind, knowing and seeing all that I'm going through? He said, I'm not going to concede to what you're saying, though. Notice verse 26. Do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of a desperate one, which are as wind? Yes, you overwhelm the fatherless and you undermine your friend. Now, therefore, be pleased to look at me, for I would never lie to your face. Yield now, let me be be known just. Yes, Yes, concede my righteousness still stands. Is there injustice on my tongue? Cannot my tongue taste discern? He's saying, that's not what's going on. That's not what's happening. So Job continues chapter seven. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of soul. Verse 12, am I a sea or a sea serpent that you set a guard over me? He's talking to God. When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch, and will ease my complaint. Verse 16, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. He's saying to God, you know, let me alone. Friends, would you just be with me? God, would you leave me alone right now? Let me alone, for my days are but a breath. What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him, that you should visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? Now, what does that mean? Well, he says, just for us, as long as it takes me to follow my saliva, would you just leave me alone? Bildad steps in chapter 8. He looks at Job's suffering in the context of the fate of his family. This is cruel when we read it. From the untimely death of Job's children, he concludes, Bildad, that they must have been wicked, and because Job did not die, his sin was not as serious. So he affirms retribution, but he says, you don't die if you're not extremely wicked. So what does that say about his children? Look at verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, How long will you speak these things, and the words of your mouth be like strong wind? Verse 3. Does God subvert judgment? Does he undermine the power and authority of of his judgment? 
Or does the Almighty pervert justice? In other words, is he changing the original meaning, altering it to distort it and corrupt it? No, he's not. Verse four, this is cruel. If your sons sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake you and prosper you rightful dwelling place. Verse 13, so are the paths of all who forget God and the hope of the hypocrite shall perish. So again, this, this, this strict justice, Job, you're getting what you deserve. Your son's got them and you will too unless you repent. Verse 20, behold, God will not cast away the blameless nor will he uphold the evildoers. Again, this justice idea. Chapter, 10, chapter 9, Job says, answered and said, truly I know that it is so. What's Job saying in chapter 9? He's saying, first of all, I'm no match for God. I get that. I agree with what you're saying. I am no match for God. He says, truly I know this is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? Or if one is, and if one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. I'm no match for God. I get that. I understand that. Verse 14, how then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. In other words, I think what I'm saying before God, I'm not sure it would matter at all because he's God. Verse 19, if it's a matter of strength, indeed he is strong. And if, if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. He said, if I were to stand before God, I'm sure at some point there would be things coming out of my mouth that would be worthy of judgment. So he knew he was no match. He also knew his need for a mediator. Again, he's working through suffering. He knew his need for a mediator. Look at verse 27. If I say I will forget my complaint, I'll put off my sad face and wear a smile. Now, how many of you have done that in suffering? I'm going to put off my sad face and put a smile on. Job wasn't going to do that. He said, I am afraid of all my sufferings. I'm going to just be honest. I'm going to be real. I know that you will not hold me innocent. I am condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? Verse 32. He is not a man as I am that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. So he's wanting this, he's wanting it basically God to show up and talk about his case. With God. He says that many times in the book of Job. Now notice verse 33. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. So he knew he needed the mediator. And he also knew that unless God showed up, his suffering would be a mystery. Wouldn't be solved. Look at chapter 10. My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands and smile on the counsel of the wicked? Unless God shows up, this is going to remain a mystery. Again, Job committed to God, complained to God, and contended with God and his friends. Chapter 11, Zophar shows up. How are we doing? Okay. Now, he looks at Job's suffering in the context of his secret life. What's going on in your heart, Job? What's that secret life that nobody knows about? So, Job is a worse sinner than what he's really saying. And what he says here, Zophar, he looks at at this whole thing of retribution, that mercy will reduce it. We reduce the punishment. And indeed, that is true. In fact, it's more than true. What God's mercy has done, it's removed the punishment for our sin. Jesus took it. He took it. 
Now, that's not saying in sinning there's consequence, but the punishment that God meted out in his son was ours, deserve, we were deserving of. So as you read Zophar, this chapter, I won't read it, but it's the shoulds, the coulds, and the woulds, W-O-U-L-D. And so he, he begins by saying, should not the multitude of words be answered? Should a man full of talk be vindicated? No, you're just chattering on. And we're not going to vindicate that. You're just going on and on, but you're, what you're saying isn't correct. Uh, why? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? But oh, God would speak. Oh, that God would speak. That he would show the secrets. They would double your prudence. If you heard God speak right now, you're asking, know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. You got some secret things going on that we don't even know about. So round number one, Zophar. Now, Job responds, chapter 12. He begins by saying this, verse two. No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. He's saying, yeah, okay, he's mocking them. He's being sarcastic. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things are true? So he's acknowledging it. Chapter 13, the same thing, verses 1 and 2. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. Twice he said, you think you're, you, got, you got a handle on this thing. Let me tell you, you don't. I'm not inferior to you. He says, you, would you ridicule me? Your attitude would be different if it were you in my place. I am mocked, verse 4, by his friends. I am one mocked by his friends who call on God, and he answered him. The just and blameless is ridiculed. A lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers prosper, and those who provoke God secure. He's saying the opposite. The tents of robbers prosper. So he's saying that's not how it always is, what you're saying. So he says, first of all, I'm not inferior to you. And then he says, please listen to me. Just listen. Verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 3. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. But you forgers of lies, you are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be silent. <laughs> How many times have you said that? I heard a chuckle. I thought probably a few. And it would be your wisdom. He's saying, if you would just listen to me, be quiet. Now hear my reasoning and heed the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? In other words, God doesn't need you contending for him. Will it, what will it be when he searches you out? <laughs> or can you mock him as one mocks a man? Your platitudes, verse 12, and Proverbs are ashes. They're worth nothing. He calls them platitudes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. They're, they'll shatter in a moment. Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Listen to what I'm saying. Then let come on me what may. Will you hear me out and then whatever's going to happen, at least you've listened to what I'm saying. Notice verse 15. Though he, God, slay me, I will trust him. Even so, I'll defend my own ways before him. He still wants to speak to God. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite could not come before him. Listen carefully to my speech and my declaration with your ears. He's saying, would you just listen to me? And then he says, would you please listen? But then he says to God, would you please answer? Chapter, uh, verse 20. Only two things do not do to me. Then I will not hide myself from me. He's talking to God. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not the dread of you make me afraid. In other words, God, would you not intimidate me? 
Answer me, then call, and I will answer, or let me speak, and you respond to me. Saying, God, would you please answer? That's been the cry and will be through these chapters. So Job continues, chapter 14. Man who is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one? And bring me to judgment with yourself. I'm so frail. I'm, I'm just human, God. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from him that he may rest. Till like a hired man he finishes. God, could it just be over? For there is hope for a tree, verse 7, if it is cut down, that it will sprout again. And that its tender shoots will not cease. Though its root may grow old in the earth and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. But man dies, is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last, and where is he? Not, Not even like a tree. As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, you don't really see that happening, but it's happening. So man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. And then this this great verse, verse 14. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. He's believing is a resurrection. So round one, Job, when life really hurts, he was committed to God. Secondly, he complained to God. It's part of the cycle. And finally, he contended with God and his friends. Now, I want to turn the corner here, share a couple things, and I want to do a Jesus call for anyone here that does not yet know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus was totally committed to do the will of his Father in heaven. There was not even a shadow or a hint of not doing that. He was willingly, he willingly suffered to die on the cross for those responsible for putting him there. That's you and me. Completely committed to what God had for him in suffering and dying for our sins. Secondly, Jesus, this blows my mind when I was thinking about it. Jesus never complained in all his life. In all of his suffering, he never complained, never. Knowing all that would come upon him, what did he do? He comforted his disciples. Going up the, ro- the, de- the, the path to the cross where they're going to hang him as he's carrying it, women are weeping. He stops. This blows my mind. This picture just stops. Here he is. You can't even recognize him as a human being. He's so, been so beaten mercilessly. He's lost a lot of blood. He's carrying that cross that eventually was given to someone else to help him. And as he's going up that Via Della Rosa, and he's, he's ble- you can't even recognize a human being, suffering so tremendously, he stops and says, don't weep for me. Don't you weep for me. You weep for yourselves because of what's coming. When he's on the cross, he's taking care of his his familial responsibilities and saying, John, here's your mother. Mary, mom, here's your son. As they're mocking him, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he surrendered his life. 
never complaining. And he did that for you and for me. He prayed for his disciples that Satan would not be able to defeat them. He intercedes as the mediator of a new covenant for us. It says, he's not a man, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Listen, Jesus is our mediator. Hebrews chapter eight, but now he obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he's also mediator of a better covenant which established on better promises. When we talk about Jesus never complained, he never complained, and now he has risen from the dead there so that he will help us in our suffering. He intercedes for us as our great mediator. Hebrews chapter nine, Christ came as high priest of good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, eternal, in the, the, not of this creation. What tabernacle is he talking about? The writer of the Hebrews. He's talking about his body. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. This is what he did for us, without one complaint. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I say, yeah. He's the mediator for us. He's the one who did all that work for us through his blood shed. He says, and for this reason, he's a mediator of a better covenant of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance if a man dies shall he live again you bet you bet jesus said it this way i am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me though he may die he shall live and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die and here's the question do you believe that do you believe this Now, how did Jesus accomplish that? He contended with Satan for his friends. That's what he did. He defeated the last enemy, death, through destroying Satan and all his works of death. That's what Jesus did on the cross for you and for me. He contended with Satan for you and for me. Destroyed him. So Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to evict the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus completely defeated him, destroyed the devil. Hebrews again, inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him, had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. For indeed he does that. Therefore in all things he hath made like his brethren, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. How many of you are tempted? Many times. Let's bow our hearts if we might, my fellow believers. This is what Jesus accomplished. In the book of Job, we're really seeing Jesus and what he's done for us. So if you're here this morning and you have not yet received him as your savior, we would love to be a part of that eternal transaction in your life by three simple ways. I ask you to raise up your hand and say, yes, I want to get right with God today. I know that my sin separated me. I know that I'm guilty before God. I know that I have no recourse. I know that if I stand before him, I need a mediator. And you want to say yes to Jesus because he took care of all that on the cross.
Secondly, I'm going to ask you to stand up because when you stand up, you're obeying the gospel. And in so doing, all the fears, all the excuses, all the reasons you've been giving for not doing it, whether there's fears or whatever, as you stand in obedience to the gospel, I will tell you God was going to come by his Holy Spirit and back that decision up as he promised he would. I'm going to ask you to raise up your hand, stand up in obedience to Jesus saying, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. It's the, most, it's the biggest time you'll ever stand up and say, yes, I want to be right with God. Yes, I want my sins forgiven. Yes, I want to know that when I die, my eternal destiny will be with God forever and ever. And then third, I'm going to ask you just to walk up to one of the tables. And there, someone will be there, someone will be there to pray with you. And in prayer, all you're doing is entering into a conversation with the God who loves you and wants to forgive and cleanse you from all your sin, give you a whole new start in life, change you from the inside out, fill all your emptiness with himself, give you meaning and purpose like you never would have thought you could have. So walk up to the tables and someone will be there and they'll pray with you. So if that's you, as we're just waiting in prayer, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, we're praying because it's a battle. And if that's you today and you're, you're battling that decision, know this, we understand that. It's a spiritual battle for your very soul. Jesus said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You don't want to do that. You want to receive God's forgiveness. So again, we're praying. If that's you, just begin by raising your hand and say, I want to say yes to Jesus right here, right now in this room and make that, that decision. And please keep your hand up so I don't miss it. I want to make sure I see that. We wouldn't want to miss this by any means. more moment. We're praying. Okay, would you stand and let's worship the Lord in song and then I'll share my final thought.